Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of attempted murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Luke Elliott, whose name has been changed for privacy reasons, beamed for perhaps the first time in months as he boarded a plane back home from Jamaica. It was June 1998, and he and his wife Abby, who has also been given a pseudonym, had just spent their 15th anniversary in paradise. They'd been growing apart recently, but their trip had brought them closer together than ever. Or so he thought. When they returned home to Maryland, he found a message. Scott Carruthers, the head of the religious organization Beta Dominion Xenophilia, demanded a decision from all of its members to get fully behind the group. Abby easily made her decision. She would follow Carruthers to the ends of the earth. For Luke, though, the answer wasn't so clear. Though his family had been devoted to Carruthers and his group over the past year, Luke's loyalty lay with his family. And in the weeks that followed, he solidified an idea that would likely tear everything apart. He knew he had to get his kids out of this toxic, coercive group. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we'll focus on Scott Carruthers and Beta Dominion Xenophilia, or BDX. We'll see how Carruthers convinced a small group of followers that he was a Christ-like figure sent from another planet to save them. We'll also cover the strange survivalist teachings that Carruthers used to take advantage of the women in his midst, and we'll untangle a failed murder plot that landed him and his devotees behind bars. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. We all have a built-in lie detector, that feeling in our gut that tells us when someone is stretching the truth. It helps us to separate fact from fiction, but it's not perfect. Most of us assume that people are honest, at least some of the time. So what happens when we run across someone who rarely tells the truth, someone without a sense of right and wrong? Those who trusted Scott Carruthers found out the answer, and it was life-changing. Carruthers was born as Arthur Brooke Crothers in 1945. His father, John, worked for the B&O Railroad in Maryland, while his mother, Dahl, was a housewife. Growing up, Carruthers shared a room with his two older brothers in their family's modest home, but they weren't his only company. He also shared the house with a veritable army of felines. His mother had a particular fondness for cats, and the place was overrun with as many as 20 at a time. With so much going on at home, it seems Carruthers had to compete for his parents' attention. It's possible that because of that, he developed inventive ways to stand out. By age 17, he developed a host of personality traits that seemed designed to impress and intrigue those around him. But by far, his favorite tactic was to just flat-out lie. 
From his late teens into adulthood, Carruthers told numerous people he was a CIA operative or a clairvoyant. Sometimes he insisted that he was an extraterrestrial from outer space. It's not clear why he was so fond of tall tales about aliens, but his fascination continued into adulthood. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, she is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Pathological lying is defined by the American Psychological Association as a persistent compulsive tendency to tell lies out of proportion to any apparent advantage that can be achieved. While it's not recognized as a diagnosis of its own, it can be a symptom of certain personality disorders. Researchers don't know everything about the mechanisms behind pathological lying, but they have observed what happens in the brains of those who engage in this kind of behavior. A study in the British Journal of Psychiatry showed that pathological liars had more white matter in their prefrontal cortex than other people. It's possible that dishonesty may be related to structural brain differences. Whether it was a result of a brain abnormality or something else entirely, Carruthers loved to stretch the truth. Carruthers dropped out of high school at the end of 10th grade, then enlisted in the army. He only lasted two months. Once he returned home, at age 17, he met 16-year-old Kathleen Wimbley at her school's prom, and she fell for him head over heels. According to Kathleen, on one of their first dates, he picked up a smooth gold rock. He told her it had been dropped by a mysterious creature that was chasing him. Kathleen hadn't seen anything following them, but she found his imagination charming. Just a few months later, the two were married, in the summer of 1963. Their union wasn't all champagne and roses. A baby girl was born less than a year after they married, but tragically, she died at only four months old. Carruthers jumped from job to job, working as a salesman, a florist, a milkman, or a truck driver. But sometimes when people asked his occupation, he'd tell them he was a secret agent or an astronaut. When he wasn't rewriting history, Carruthers dedicated himself to fitness and exercise. He was also a heavy spender, often burning more cash than he earned at his numerous low-paying jobs. Eventually, things got so bad that Carruthers and Kathleen were forced to move in with his parents to save money. Sure, there were a few too many cats there for Kathleen's liking, but the newlyweds got by. They continued to live that way until Carruthers' father died in 1966. His passing hit Doll hard. She stopped cleaning the house and started collecting her husband's fingernail clippings in a jar. The cats ran rampant, destroying the furniture and urinating everywhere. It seems this stressful environment took a toll on Carruthers' young marriage. He started to pull away from his wife and spend more time on his own out of the house. Their relationship deteriorated over the next year, until one fateful night in the spring of 1967, when it all fell apart. Kathleen was puttering around the house and happened to look through the window. Outside, she spotted her 22-year-old husband, dressed in a tuxedo, standing next to a limousine. For a brief moment, perhaps she thought it was a romantic throwback to the start of their relationship. But to her dismay, Carruthers climbed into the limo and drove away. It was prom night, and he had a date with a teenage girl. 
This new girlfriend was the first of many. The very next spring, he took another teenager to her school dance. The two even eloped the next year when she turned 18. Carruthers didn't bother to divorce Kathleen. He simply told his new partner that his wife had died. Kathleen eventually divorced him. Three years later, in 1971, Carruthers did the exact same thing again with another high schooler, courting her on prom night when she was only 16, while his second wife waited at home. The new couple married when she turned 18, by which point Carruthers was 27. That union only lasted two years. This pattern continued for over a decade as Carruthers moved from girl to girl. By the mid-80s, he had three or four wives, countless girlfriends, and several children. Hardly any of them were aware of his history. Sometime during this period, he changed his name from Arthur Crothers to Scott Carruthers. According to his third wife, he told her that he'd spent his early childhood in Scotland and wanted to share a name with his homeland. This was a far cry from his past insistence that he was an alien from another planet. But consistency was never something Carruthers cared about. And from there, his fantasies only got more out of this world. Carruthers started speaking of an imminent apocalypse, which he called Earth Changes, and he said he was humanity's savior. He even drew on his childhood experience surrounded by cats. He claimed the felines allowed him to communicate with his alien mothership. Perhaps this was a veiled reference to the way they might have helped him connect with his own mother. With each retelling, his lies became bolder. Soon, he was itching to find someone else to share in his twisted fantasy world. In 1985, at the age of 40, he met the perfect partner, 25-year-old Irmina Jombo. Irmina had been married for three years when she met Carruthers. Of course, that didn't stop him from pursuing her. He was never one for monogamy. And just like the others, their relationship progressed quickly. Carruthers began regularly stopping by unannounced. One night, he showed up on her doorstep in tears and was greeted by Irmina, her husband, and her parents that she lived with. According to Irmina's husband, Carruthers said he was conducting an Air Force test mission as part of his astronaut training and accidentally shot down another pilot. As he sat with his head in his hands, tears welling up in his eyes, Irmina comforted him. Irmina's husband and mother didn't believe Carruthers for a minute, but Irmina bought into his story hook, line, and sinker. That might have sealed the deal for Carruthers. He knew he could rely on Irmina to believe him, no matter how outlandish his tales. Over the next year, it seems he let Irmina in on some of his strange prophecies about the coming apocalypse. Slowly, the two started to grow closer. At some point, Irmina walked out the front door of her home and never returned. She left her old life and her old husband behind. All she took with her was a single pillow and her cat. Coming up, Carruthers spreads his message and beefs up his bank account. Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. 
featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. All acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday, only on Spotify. Now back to the story. In 1985, 40-year-old Scott Carruthers met 25-year-old Irmina Jombo. The two bonded over his unorthodox religious beliefs and gripping, though mostly false, life story. About a year later, Irmina decided she wanted in on his radical belief system. She left her husband and moved in with Carruthers. Before long, she was following in his footsteps and changed her name. She took on the moniker Dashel Lashra, though we're not sure why she chose this name. While Carruthers seemed to be making progress in his personal life, he was still struggling to make ends meet. He was living paycheck to paycheck, and his long list of abandoned wives and children had to get by without his support. But in time, his financial fortunes took a turn for the better. At some point, Carruthers allegedly injured his hand in a climbing accident. While acquaintances of Carruthers don't remember the accident happening, if it did occur, it was likely a major hindrance for Carruthers because ever since high school, he'd loved to exercise. While contemplating how to maintain his weightlifting regimen, he came up with the idea for the strong put. It was a revolutionary dumbbell that didn't require the user to grip the handle. You just slipped your hand inside like a bowling ball. Later that year, he used his magnetic personality and charm to recruit several hundred investors for the strong put. Along the way, he amassed a small but devoted group of friends and co-workers. The first of these was a local lawyer and his law partner. It didn't take long for the men to fall for Carruthers' pitch. Soon, they were lobbying their neighbors to invest along with them. Their testimonials worked. Strong put eventually saw an influx of nearly $1 million in cash. Carruthers was thrilled. In time, the partnership with his supporters extended outside of work. The lawyers and their wives started befriending Carruthers and Dashell. One of the lawyers even invited his sister Deborah to join the group. Carruthers quickly took a liking to Deborah and appointed her as a strong put fitness consultant. Over the next several years, it's likely that Carruthers slowly introduced his new circle of friends to his outrageous beliefs. He told them about the coming end of the world, which he called Earth Changes, and the alien mothership he claimed to communicate with. He also revealed that Strongput was actually the first step in a grander plan. He really wanted to construct a futuristic device for NASA called the Inertialess Lever. Carruthers was an expert at making absurd claims sound sincere and believable. As his colleagues swallowed more and more of his lies, their friendship grew in intensity. Meanwhile, the strong put seemed primed for success. In 1992, the device launched publicly at a trade show in Atlanta and was a huge hit. Publications like the New York Times wrote glowing reviews. It was even featured in a number of Hollywood films, including a Star Trek movie. 
Despite all the positive press, Strongput couldn't maintain its momentum. Carruthers' manufacturing deals fell through, and it seemed he was blowing through the money. By 1996, it became clear that the company was dead in the water. Carruthers had to think fast if he wanted to save his newfound wealth, so he came up with a plan. He and his friend David Gable decided to play Strongput into a publicly held company, hoping that would bring in more funds. When this didn't work, they created a new publicly traded company, Carnegie International Corp. When Strongput finally went bankrupt in 1997, investors who'd poured their savings into the business were left reeling. Some lost their homes, and others had to pull their kids out of college. But Carruthers and his comrades emerged unscathed, saved by the Carnegie stock. Now, with millions at his disposal and a devoted group of followers that hung out his every word, Carruthers focused on the bigger picture. He needed to prepare for the apocalypse. That meant he'd have to find higher ground. In 1997, he and Dashell relocated to a two-story colonial house in the hills outside Westminster, Maryland. The street was named Scott Drive. It seemed like fate had led them there. Within a short time, Deborah left her husband to join them, along with her eight-year-old daughter. Like Dashell, she changed her name, choosing to go by Dulsa Nadek. Some reports suggested that Dulsa moved in with them, and that Dulsa also had a sexual relationship with Carruthers. Others in Carruthers' circle eventually bought properties close to him and moved in with their kids. One of the first people to move to the Scott Drive community soon became Carruthers' bodyguard. It's unclear if Carruthers felt threatened. More than likely, the bodyguard was designed to make himself appear important, or to reinforce one of his many lies. Either way, their unassuming section of Scott Drive now seemed fortified against any possible danger. And by this time, Carruthers had given the group an official name, Beta Dominion Xenophilia, which means next world alien lovers in Latin. As BDX took shape, Carruthers started introducing more structure into the group. He ordered members to record their thoughts in journals and fax them to him daily. Anyone who questioned his authority or wavered in their loyalty to him was reprimanded. He said he planned to build a post-apocalyptic compound and needed everyone to trust him completely. He also employed tactics to distance his followers from the outside world. He started referring to himself as Commander and Dashell as his Queen. He preached about obedience and sacrifice late into the night. Carruthers framed these lessons as a way to prepare for impending disaster. But in reality, all they did was force his followers to reorient their lives around him. All of this was carried out in the utmost secrecy. Not even their neighbors knew what was going on in their quiet cul-de-sac. But all that changed when two new members joined the crew. Luke Elliott, an old friend of a man in BDX and new associate at another member's law firm, had been curious about Carruthers since first noticing him in 1997. From the moment he spotted Carruthers floating around the office, he was immediately drawn to the man's ethereal energy. At a 4th of July party a few months later, Carruthers finally approached Luke. It didn't take long for him to cut to the chase, revealing that he was a CIA agent. He said he had inside information about forthcoming planetary changes that would cause widespread destruction. With an introduction like that, Luke was instantly intrigued. He listened as Carruthers explained that he and a small group of people were preparing for the forthcoming chaos. 
He said they were all undergoing training to bring them to a level of higher awareness. He asked if Luke wanted in. Luke wasn't sure what to make of the conversation. Thinking it was a misunderstanding or even a joke, he asked his friend and co-worker. To his surprise, they backed up everything Carruthers said. Luke was torn. Either two of the people he trusted most had been tricked by a blatant con, or Carruthers was telling the truth. He decided to trust his friends. Luke and his wife, Abby, started attending meetings on Scott Drive and observing the training program. It involved eating healthy, exercising, learning about the upcoming cataclysms, and adopting cats. This was unfortunate for Luke, who was allergic, but despite that, in August of 1998, Luke and his wife officially moved into the neighborhood with their three young children. But once Luke was really on the inside, he started to feel uneasy about his decision. He noticed that, at times, Carruthers was inconsistent in his prophecies. He seemed to lie. Luke watched as his friends and loved ones gradually divorced themselves from the rest of society under Carruthers' influence. Abby and another woman in the group quit their jobs, and another member broke his yearly tradition of coaching soccer. It seemed that members became more and more dependent on Carruthers. At this point, Carruthers was likely supporting the group, using dividends from his Carnegie International stock. And Carruthers wanted to control more than just his followers' careers and bank accounts. He constantly reminded the group to be loyal to him and his teachings above all else, including their spouses. Anyone who questioned their devotion to BDX, whether they be relatives or acquaintances, had to be cut out. Yet while the other members had to follow the rules, Carruthers himself was free to do as he pleased and continue his womanizing ways. That didn't sit right with Luke. But he was even more worried that the leader posed a danger to the children, including Luke's own kids. Luke was right to be concerned about the children. According to John G. Clark Jr., an assistant professor of psychiatry, kids who leave cults face a higher risk of mental health issues. In the 1970s and 80s, Clark studied over 500 current and former cult members and found that they often exhibited depression, guilt, fear, and paranoia. In addition, they showed physical symptoms such as slowed speech and rigid facial expressions. Luke was having second thoughts about BDX, but his wife Abby was deeply committed. He was afraid that if he shared his doubts with her, she'd leave him for Carruthers and take the kids with her. So for a time, he tried to stick it out and hoped Abby would eventually come to her senses. But Carruthers could sense that Luke wasn't fully committed to the cause. When Luke and Abby returned from a trip to Jamaica that summer, they got a memo from Carruthers. It was time for the Elliots to decide where their loyalties lay. Luke chose Abby, but just as he feared, she chose Carruthers. By the following summer, Luke departed the Westminster neighborhood alone. Heartbroken, he resolved to save his kids from the man who tore his family apart. And soon he found that he wasn't the only one. Coming up, Carruthers is finally taken down. Now back to the story. In the summer of 1998, Luke Elliott first began contemplating leaving Scott Carruthers' group BDX after the leader sent a memo to every member requesting them to side with him. There was a problem, though. 
Luke's family, including his children, were fully entangled within BDX. Luke appeared determined to get his kids out of BDX, and he was willing to take Carruthers down along the way. And Luke wasn't the only one. That summer, the Tulkoff family, relatives of a woman in BDX, who will refer to as Emily, hired a private investigator to get dirt on Carruthers. And he got to work and uncovered some shocking documents. In early 1999, while digging through the trash cans at Carruthers' house, the PI discovered fax cartridges containing hundreds of journal entries written by BDX members. The messages described Carruthers as an alien messiah destined to save the world. They also showed a disturbing loyalty to their leader. Critically, the cartridges also depicted the women's sexual encounters with Carruthers in explicit detail. A few months later, the Tulkoffs teamed up with Dulcinatek's first husband, Tom Halloran, whose name has also been changed, along with relatives of Luke to pool information. And while this collective quietly collected damning evidence against Carruthers, trouble was brewing for him on the financial front, too, regarding Carnegie International. In the spring of 1999, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission caught wind of the strange activity surrounding the creation of the publicly traded corporation. On April 29th, the SEC halted Carnegie Trading, only one day after it was listed on the American Stock Exchange. It looked like Carruthers' endless cash flow was about to run dry. Yet even with this trouble looming, it seems Carruthers wasn't too concerned. Life had taught him that there was no problem he couldn't lie his way out of. Besides, his focus was elsewhere. Recently, he'd felt a growing urge to grow his following. By the late 90s, he'd found an unorthodox answer to his prayers, making cyber art. Carruthers threw himself into making visual depictions of his otherworldly visions. His work mostly centered around his alien delusions, featuring portraits of spaceships and gray-faced extraterrestrials that he made on his computer. In typical Carruthers fashion, he managed to connect with prominent members of the East Coast art scene. In no time, he'd charmed his way into a limited exhibit at the University of Pennsylvania set for June of 1999. Despite his precarious financial situation, Carruthers spent his time planning a lavish opening event. And while he was busy planning a massive tribute to his own ego, the people he'd left behind were ready to strike back. On June 15th, three days before Carruthers' big debut, Tom picked up his daughter from Scott Drive for his weekly visit. He filed for emergency custody. Seizing the opportunity, Luke also filed for custody of his three children. In court, both men presented BDX's disturbing journal entries to a judge and argued that their kids would be in danger if they remained in BDX. The judge agreed and awarded them temporary custody, Luke and Tom were finally able to rescue their children from Carruthers. The leader had to be upset, but he couldn't let non-believers shake him now. He had a show to think about. On June 18th, Carruthers arrived at his show with a bang, stepping out of a limousine with Dashiell on one arm and Dulce on the other. A live orchestra played as 300 guests munched on filet mignon and pondered his computer-generated images of aliens and flying saucers. In all, the party cost around $500,000. But the triumph was short-lived. With Carnegie's trading halted and his personal bank accounts finally drying up, Carruthers couldn't pay for his party. 
jilted vendors were forced to file a bankruptcy suit against him. From there, his problems snowballed. The financial woes were bad enough, but Carruthers also had to worry about BDX's struggling reputation. Carruthers normally relished attention, but not this kind. He knew that if he couldn't get control of the narrative, he would never be able to recruit more followers. So he decided to nip the bad press in the bud. Later that June, he invited a reporter over and gave a three-hour interview from his house, claiming that his enemies were trying to slander his name. He said his so-called cult members were just his employees, and the vulgar journal entries were simply creative writing exercises intended to help him develop ideas for a science fiction novel. Anyone who claimed that he actually thought he was an alien was lying. It was a valiant effort, but not nearly enough. Despite his attempt to conceal BDX's true teachings, Carruthers couldn't quash all the rumors. Negative stories about his private life trickled through the media. And since Tom and Luke's custody hearing, the police had been investigating the group. Eventually, Abby Elliott and Dulce Nadek lost long-term custody of their children. Things were not looking good for BDX. All the lies, it seemed, were finally catching up to Carruthers. He needed to fix it, and fast. He decided he would go to any lengths to protect his reputation and conceal his lies. He would even kill to do it. In August of 2001, Carruthers hired a new bodyguard named Amir Tabasi. We don't know how much Tabasi knew about BDX or what he witnessed at Scott Drive, but not long after starting his new job, Tabasi alleged that Carruthers approached him with a proposition. According to Tabasi's account to authorities, Carruthers wanted him to kill four men who had interfered with BDX. Luke Elliott, Tom Halloran, Michael Tulkoff, and David Gable. In return, Tabasi alleged that Carruthers said he would give him over $100,000 in stock shares and a $6,000 gold bracelet as a down payment. Unfortunately for Carruthers, he'd profoundly misjudged the bodyguard. After hearing Carruthers' plan, Tabasi consulted with a lawyer who advised him to take the information to Gable. Tabasi followed the recommendation, and Gable and his lawyers went to the FBI with Tabasi's account. With the new intel in hand, the FBI launched an investigation into Carruthers and his group. For the next month, agents studied Carruthers and BDX carefully. Finally, in October of 2001, they instructed the Maryland State Police to move in on the quiet cul-de-sac. At around 2 a.m. on October 3rd, under the dim street lamps, a line of police cars glided towards the two-story colonial house where Carruthers slept. The peace was shattered by the whirring of a helicopter. The officers sprang into action, first descending on Carruthers' home, then moving on to the residence of another Inner Circle member nearby. Carruthers, Dashell, Dulsa, and the other associate were arrested. They were held in the Carroll County Detention Center for months, unable to pay the $1 million bond. At some point, an additional search showed Abby Elliott was also involved in the murder plot. She joined them in jail, but her bail was set much lower than her co-conspirators. It's unclear why authorities went easy on her, but Abby was eventually able to pay for her release. She did have to undergo deprogramming treatment, however. Deprogramming is a difficult process. 
Historically, experts have had trouble persuading cult members to abandon their loyalties to their leader. As a result, controversial methods like deprogramming have been developed to shock followers out of their newfound belief system and altered mental state. During deprogramming, patients are forced to listen to criticisms of their beloved leader, which probably seems to them like blasphemous accusations. They're told that the things they believed in and sacrificed for are wrong. The thorough experience must be excruciating. While Abby went through this process of deprogramming, Carruthers built up his legal defense. Initially, he was represented by his former legal counsel, another member of the group. Carruthers and his defense argued that the charges against him and his cohort were simply a conspiracy to bring the group down. But he didn't get far with this claim. By the end of 2002, Carruthers had changed tactics and tried to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. That didn't work either, though. Doctors hired by the prosecution determined he was of sound mind. From there, it seems his defense crumbled. In time, his most loyal partners didn't stick by him and took the best deals they could get. In December of that year, Dashiell Lashra entered an Alford plea. This means the defendant concedes that prosecutors have enough evidence for a conviction, but doesn't require the defendant to actually admit guilt. As part of her agreement, Dashiell was given a 10-year suspended sentence and probation and released from custody right away. She'd already been imprisoned since October of the previous year. After that, as the months passed, every one of Carruthers' co-conspirators entered Alford pleas and got out of serving more jail time. In some cases, the judge stipulated that they undergo deprogramming or seek mental health treatment. Then, in May of 2003, after 19 months behind bars, Carruthers reversed his course. For perhaps the first time in his life, he decided to be a follower instead of a leader and entered an Alford plea of his own. The judge had found him guilty of three charges of conspiracy and three charges of solicitation to murder. From Carruthers' perspective, however, he maintained that BDX and its beliefs were based on pure science fiction and were never meant to be taken seriously by anyone. Thanks to a deal with the prosecution, Carruthers was only given a suspended sentence and five years probation. If he stayed out of trouble, he could remain a free man. But if he failed to comply with the law, he'd have to serve up to 40 years in prison. As an additional requirement of his release, Carruthers was ordered to stay away from the Elliots and other former associates. The 58-year-old was happy to take the deal. Ever the spin man, Carruthers claimed that he gained wisdom and strength during his time in prison. He also stated, there is not now, nor has there ever been, a cult of any kind. There's little information available about Carruthers and BDX since the trial. But wherever he is, it seems he's laying low. Hopefully, at least some of the people that fell under his spell were able to regain their sense of right and wrong and start lives anew. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Scott Carruthers and Beta Dominion Xenophilia, amongst the many sources we used, we found articles published in the Baltimore Sun to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. 
Sound design by Juan Borda. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Cults was written by Danny Messerschmidt. With writing assistance by Natalie Pritzowski and Terrell Wells. Fact-checking by Claire Cronin and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cult stars Greg Paulson and Vanessa Richardson. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify. 